Welcome to Eternal Leadership. I'm Steve Ryder and John Ramstead, my co-host, is with me. And today, John, we have a very, very special person that is very dear to my heart. When I look back at the last seven years in this wilderness journey, coming out of this wilderness journey, there are a couple key moments that I can look back and say, yes, that meeting, that person, that conference that I went to was instrumental in helping me to shift my paradigm is one of those cornerstone moments. He and his wife are absolutely special. Well, thank you for that, Steve. I appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to talking with you today and a lot of other people as they listen in to help them advance into their destiny, their purpose, and actually to enjoy who they are as well as what they're doing. Dale Mast is our guest, and it was at a meeting at Terry Tyson's house. And for those of you that have listened to the show, Terry Tyson's been a guest not that long before this interview. It was at Terry's house. Terry had a small gathering of people that I want to say it was probably 10 to 12 people that were around that table that first day. Yes that we met and it was one of those times that your book and David perceived he was king. I read it going into that event and highlighted a whole bunch and that meeting was incredible. So David perceived he was king is a book that you wrote and it's basically about one little scripture in what is it? First Samuel. Well, it's second Samuel five twelve, and I'd like to read it to you just so that we can focus because what I found when I read something in the Bible and I don't understand it, it means there's something there probably that's really going to help me if I meditate <laughs> and study it out. So it said, and David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the, his people Israel's sake. Now, there's a couple of things there just starting off is David perceived that the Lord had established him king. First of all, we have to understand that David, everything that he gained up to this point had been taken from him in some fashion or way. He was picked by uh, Samuel to be the next king in front of his brothers, yet Eliab, his older brother, despised him at the battle of Goliath. So the honor that Samuel put on him, his brothers were not buying into. They're still jealous. And he's delivering the bread. It feels like when he was lifted up, his brother shoved him backwards. So then he is playing the harp for King Saul and uh, actually is ministering to him quite effectively, but actually is then later pursued by King Saul. He's leading the armies of Israel, and he's a hero after defeating Goliath. Then he's the hunted villain. So he marries, well, Michael, the king's daughter, and then she's given away to another man. It's like what in life is mine to keep? And I think when he became king, he thought, you know, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I probably am going to have another integrity challenge here where it's going to be taken away and I'm going to have to. But the Lord said, the crown's on his head. People are calling him King David. And it finally seeks in. You've reached your destiny. You're not living defensively. You've been established, David. Now be the king. And when that identity came in, it shifted his activity, his expectation, and the trajectory of his destiny. I always say this, the best campaigner becomes the next president of the United States, not the best politician. So 
after becoming the best campaigner, they have to actually switch out their identity to being the next president. And so what got you there is not what will keep you there. So how specifically did things shift for David between when he became king and when he finally perceived that he was king? Well, first of all, that the first thing is he believed it was his place to operate out of and that God had actually established him there. So he's not struggling to maintain it. If we struggle to maintain our position or authority, we're not as fruitful. But when we relax in it, it's like the genius in us is naturally unreleased. So what I say to people, you know, like you could be the president of a company, but if you're paranoid that you're not going to make it, it actually will steal your creative juices. It will take away your faith. You really won't enjoy it because you wake up with fear instead of vision. And so you could be highly successful, but actually toxic in your own soul and mind. Mm. But when you know you're established, what happens is you're not only established, you help establish other people. If I am a leader and I'm uncertain, what do I put in other people? Uncertainty. You can only give what you have. So when David was established, then what he did is start establishing order in the kingdom. But until you're established, you cannot establish the supportive team or what needs to be around you to make the vision to come to pass. And Dale, when you say struggle to maintain, because I can relate to that, what kind of struggle do you refer to? Well, if you think about this, David was overlooked by his natural father, but yet he was chosen by God. Now, this is huge. If your dad overlooks you, and your dad could like you, he could love you, but overlook your natural talent or your ability. Most fathers cannot really see their son's greatness, but to a certain level. So all of us sort of need help in that uh, realm. So think about it. David's brought from the fields, and they say the prophet's waiting at the house to anoint the next king of Israel, and we think it could be you. The servant would probably have an idea. And Samuel told the father and his brothers, uh, I'm sorry, his sons, and said, I'm not going to sit down until, until he arrives. Now, this Samuel's an old guy. So finally, actually, when they got there, if you look in the story, he was, they rose up, which it meant they sat down because it took such a long time. So can you imagine entering a room? You're about 13, 14. Samuel your father, all the brothers stand at attention as you walk in, and you're then anointed as the king of Israel. But after Samuel leaves, the brothers say, do you know that dad actually forgot you? He didn't see you as being the next king. So what God did, he knew that Jesse did not think that highly of David. So what he did, he brought the greatest prophet out of retirement who was honored in Israel And Samuel did not just pour prophetic words over David's life. He poured his honor over David. And that honor that he poured over David actually filled in the vacuum of what his father did not do for him. It takes honor to enter into a new season and a new identity. And God will send people into our life to pour honor over us where I would say sometimes to remove dishonor, but a lot of times where there's been no celebration over our life, 
we cannot be fruitful. So God will take somebody with honor to celebrate us. And there's something about that celebration that unlocks the treasures within a person. If I celebrate you, there's things that will come out of you that if I'm critical, analytical, and trying to make you prove yourself to me will never surface because I'm actually creating an atmosphere of fear and uh, it's toxic to our genius. Well, like the atmosphere of fear is toxic to your genius. <laughs> That's true. And you talked about something, you know, before we started recording, each step of the way, all these different things that David went through, God was establishing David's identity. And then all these adversities, right, the enemy was trying to steal it. And you yes. said something to me that I thought was really profound is that David never let his assignment become his identity. And I think it's, you know, our identity, it's my belief that it's a chains of a false identity that are actually holding us back from our full potential that Christ created us into. And I'd love for you to share your thoughts just on, especially through the lens of what David went through is, you know, how did David separate assignment from identity and how do we do that? Well, first of all, I want to bring back to some important components to this. It takes a Goliath to reveal a David. You're not known by what you avoid, but by what you overcome. Now, faith is what you believe God can do. Identity is what you believe he can do through you. So in other words, I know God can bring peace, but when I step into the room, can I bring peace? Can he bring peace through me? You follow the thinking. So mm. when David stood before King Saul, and we're talking about identity shifts that David had trouble making, we're going to focus on that first of all. He said, I killed the lion and the bear. This Goliath is no problem. But the reward for killing Goliath, one of the rewards was King Saul's daughter, not Michael, but Merib, the oldest daughter. And when David had defeated Goliath, he came in for the reward. King Goliath said, Listen, I'm going to give you my daughter's hand in marriage, as I promised. What did David respond? He said, who am I and who's my family? Don't kid yourself. It was a huge step from a shepherd to the king in the palace of King Saul. And what he was saying is, I'm caring in my faith to be the next king of Israel, but I can't marry a king's daughter. Now, David had faith to kill Goliath, but he didn't have enough identity to Ooh. receive the reward. Oh. So what he did, he actually crashed his own forward progress. And God was saying, I think from heaven, he said, listen, if you're going to put this king above what I've said over your life, I'm going to let him chase you until you agree with me. I really believe that David's false humility, who am I and who's my family, actually started chasing him. King Saul was actually impressed with him until he sold himself out in front of King Saul. Mm, that's interesting. I've never heard anyone kind of describe it like that. Yeah. Do you understand that when you gain a great victory and people come up to you and say, hey, John, Steve, that was awesome. And you say, oh, that was nothing. That was just the Lord. I don't even know how it happened. Instead of you getting the job, they'll give you a pat on the back and walk away because you just talked yourself out of your future. So how would you address that situation? Somebody comes up to you and says, Dale, man, that was amazing. Great job. Thank you. That changed my life. And I think a lot of us, our response is to say, yeah, you know, that was God. You know, we're, we almost think well, that's like what's expected is that kind of humility. 
Yeah, I call it a little bit of spiritual hogwash. I can't come up with a better. In other words, it sounds like humility, <laughs> but actually it's not. The Bible, in other words, mm. what I would do, if you said that to me, I'd say, you know, John, thank you for that. I thank God for the way he made me. I only have one question. What did he make you for? Because whatever it is, you're a genius at it. And I celebrate the gift in you, and I celebrate the gift he put in me. And in it, everything was created with purpose. And so I learned that when people would thank me or celebrate me, that I also then privately take it to the Lord. And I say, Lord, thank you for the way you've made me to do these things, to help other people, because really, in the final analysis, our destiny is to help create other people's destiny. If I just win, it's a shallow existence, but I was caused to win to help other people to win. And if you never help other people to win, you've really not entered into destiny, actually living in a little selfish bubble. The way you say it in the book, there's one sentence here that I have underlined out of many. Jealousy and criticalness are the face of insecurity, but underneath it all is the lack of identity. Yeah. So, Dale, how do we get to that point where we shed that false humility, where we understand and we really start to understand our identity? Okay, let's start from the beginning block, which is God the Father. Do you believe that God the Father is great? Yes. Were you made in his image and likeness? Yes. Okay, so you came from greatness to do something great. Ooh. But Dale, I don't feel great. You may not feel the heat and the cold, but it doesn't change the fact that both are around you at given points, but there's a greatness in you. Now, what I believe is, as we look into the face, which is the identity of the Father, I find that I have a certain gifting. When I look at you, Steve, when I look at you, John, if I'm around you, I start seeing the face of the Father in you. As I help celebrate that, it helps you to perceive where you have kingship, where people say, you know, John, when you came and said this, that helped me so much, wherever people tell you you've helped them is part of your genius, so start to pursue it. Don't be like Michael Jordan who picked up baseball. He found out he loved baseball, but baseball did not love him. (laughs) That's very true. And he was not the world's greatest athlete. He was the greatest basketball player. But we can love things that we're not good at. And actually, it deters us from our genius. And this is the part, once people start saying to you, John, you know, they'll tell you stories. I have it in my book. Ask people when they think of you, what has been the thing that has been the most helpful from your life concerning them? As they'll tell you stories, ask the Lord where he is uh, utilizing your life to help other people go forward. But I get it from God, from people. And it says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is established. So in that, I start giving myself to that which is my genius, not that which I wish I could do. Think of this, professional level, if a football player is a step and a half quicker, he's a star. If he's two steps quicker, he's a superstar. Now, if everybody became a step or two quicker, they would go from being uh, average at a professional rank to outstanding. 
The problem is we can get distracted with what our greatness is. And I actually told this story to a pastor that actually it was true of, you know, when you're coming to contract on a baseball team, you're not just a baseball player. You don't go to the mound and everybody says, well, where do you want to play this inning? You're contracted for a position on the team. And this one uh, guy, Yankees, he was drafted by the Yankees. He wanted to be a pitcher. And after a year, they cut him, but they came to him and said, you could be a catcher. You're better than our catcher, but he would not give up being a pitcher. And the Yankees went on to win a World Series. He could out hit, out throw the catcher. But because he would not switch into his identity, he missed literally rings. Well, yeah, and you talk about this concept that I found fascinating. Um, You know, the Bible talks in context of seasons, and we go from one season to the next season. And you said that an identity shift is required in each new season. And in each new season, we need to see God with a greater level of clarity. And we're also required to kind of see ourselves in a new way as we move into that season. So, our identity is not fixed, right? It's continuing to grow and evolve as we're moving through life and growing closer to God. But I'd love to to have you expand on that. Okay. Yes. And so what has to, we have to realize is there are things that are hidden in our identity that will not literally emerge until we've reached another season. Mm -hmm. So God doesn't want us to be distracted sometimes by what's down the road 30 years. So he'll set in front of us a 10-year goal. When we come into that place, we all of a sudden realize something that is in us that we never saw is starting to emerge because this brought out another realm of who we are. So let me give you an example. God himself said to David, I took you from the few sheep that followed you and made you king. So what God does, he takes us from what we're doing and he makes us. Now, what he does to make us is he gives us assignments. When David was playing the harp and he's driving the demon off of King Saul, that was his assignment. But the purpose was he was watching Saul, King Israel. He was getting king lessons from a harp position. He was playing the harp, but he was seeing the generals come in. He was seeing the king talk. He was in King School 101. So what happens is, if he just fixated on his harp, and he was really good at it, there was nobody in Israel like him, but he was learning king lessons while playing the harp. A lot of people, when they play the harp, they don't realize what else they're learning. So what happens is, then as he's delivering bread, he's now going from bread boy to being the giant killer. David ran toward Goliath, a shepherd boy. He walked away a warrior. That victory changed his identity. Nobody saw David as a shepherd boy again. He was not only a warrior, he was the leader of the armies because all of them were hiding. And if you look at the chemistry, when he stood in front of Goliath, he said, I'm going to kill you. Then he looked at all the other armies of Israel and he said, we're going to come after all the other Philistines and we're taking all of you out. So what he did He created a victory. He brought the people that were afraid forward on his back to fight a battle they had opted out of. And so he put courage back in to the army, and he literally became the leader of the army, not just the one who took down Goliath. He was very strategic 
in what he was doing. And I think it's because he watched King Saul. He watched the commanders. He started understanding the chemistry. He could have never learned that on the shepherd field. I completely agree. When you say that story about David being playing the harp, but learning how to be king, I can, I look back at my time that I worked for Dr. James Dobson, mm-hmm. where I remember it was a board meeting in 2008, right before the 2008 election. We were in Cody, Wyoming, and we were at this ranch of one of the board members. And this board member was a billionaire. And mm-hmm. I was interacting with the board member and her husband. And I was interacting with the ranch manager and Doc's assistant, Becky Lane, came up to me and she said, I'm amazed at you. You're interacting here with a billionaire and you're interacting with the ranch manager on the same level, but yet you're interacting with them on different levels. And she was just, Mm. and that's what my time with Doc was about for me. It was all about learning about just taking my game up to another level. Dale, in the book, in chapter six, you tell a story of a pastor, you renamed him Steve, and Uh frustration that came out of that. For me, this was one of the best stories in the entire book. So can you share that for the listeners? Yes. Well, you know, and that was Steve, I'm assuming the one, because I have to reread the book now and then, but uh, that actually was set in to help uh, counsel marriages, correct? And I... uh, So Steve was the one that ran off of the church secretary. Yeah, that's the same one. Okay, yeah. perfect. He was actually set in, him and his wife, to counsel marriages in this emerging network. And I looked at him and I said, he has struggles. I mean, it was just prophetic insight. Mm. And I thought, why would you do that? And then he ran off of the secretary. And what happened out of it became very difficult because my niece came to me and she said to me, she said, you know, I used to believe God was real. My pastor ran off with the secretary. My parents are divorced. Where's God? And in it, a bitter root emerged in my heart. Now, this guy had a larger church than me. And I thought, you know, Lord, it seems like you're just passing me by. And I mean, I've been more faithful than this guy. Why am I stuck here with 150 people in my church? And so God was working on me and hadn't seen the guy for about seven years. And all of a sudden, he pops up a pastoral meeting in front of me. And I could feel the righteous indignation and actually some ungodly judgments between me and God. And I was upset. And then I heard he got a church and that it was growing again. And it actually had already outgrown my church again. Mm. And I was upset. And somebody, an elder in my church come up to me and said, Oh, you're so blessed. I'm so blessed to hear that uh, my children are going to a church where pastor Steve is and uh, it's growing. They have 10 elders and, there's a part I didn't put in the book, 10 elders. And isn't that wonderful? And I said, what's his last name? And they couldn't remember. So I said it. They said, that's it. That's it. And I was torqued. And I said, God, this is not right. And God, I heard God say so quick. He said, you're not right. I said, listen, I've been faithful to my wife all these years. You owe me. And when it came out of my mouth, it shocked me. And the Lord said, I'm a debtor to no man. Everything that I have given this man is by my grace. And if you think I owe you, I cannot bless you. And I said, God, you don't owe me anything. Just bless me, bless me, bless me. And he did. The funny part of the story is the elders came back a couple of weeks later and said, you know, the name, the last name of that guy, it wasn't that name because there was two pastors with the name Steve in the same town. And I heard God say, got ya. <laughs> But actually, I went back to that pastor 
who did have a bigger church than me. It wasn't as big as I thought. That was another church. I said, would you forgive me for my unrighteous judgment? I'm getting ready to build. And he forgave me. And it was like a deliverance. And what I realized, I was trying to earn what God had already given me. And see, if I earn it and he gives it to me, I'll always be a servant. I'll never be a son. Oh, wow. That's why when we try to earn certain blessings, God will not give them to us because he doesn't want that level of relationship. That's in my book, Two Sons and a Father. It talks about an inheritance versus a paycheck. I think that's incredible that you actually reached out to him. I mean, it's not something that you were bad-mouthing him out loud. It's not something that you were spreading rumors about him. I never talked about him, but it was in my heart. This is something in your heart, and then you actually go to him and you say, please forgive me. That is convicting, my man. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing was, it was between me and Father God, and anything between me and Father God that he asked me to do, that obedience empowers my destiny because unforgiveness and bitterness is like acid to any dream. Mm. It just tears it up. And so, and it's actually a distraction. And I find that if I suffer in a godly way, it puts strength in me. If I suffer in my flesh, it, it weakens me. In other words, if I do it carnally, suffering as a whole is not a positive or negative, but your response determines what it becomes. So it is completely natural this process, our identity, right? Things are being taken away. They're being deleted. They're being emphasized. They're being changed. We're getting new awareness. So this is like this ongoing process. And here's my question is, what is your thoughts or your advice to all of us as we're, we want that process to lead us to that true identity in Christ. I think of Ephesians 2.10, right? We're, we're his perfect workmanship. And I think there's this gap between that identity, which is the one that we were created in and the one that we are maybe aware of right now. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I just want to just talk a bit about completeness and not that I would say that I attained like Paul, but I pressed toward it. Until you really sense the Father's pleasure with you, Mm. You cannot unwrap your identity to the depth that he would like. And uh, I want to refer just a minute to the two sons and the father about the prodigal coming home. What do you mean his method was gold? He asked the father for his inheritance. It takes an inheritance to fulfill a destiny. Without your inheritance, you will never fulfill your destiny. And so, that is really crucial to understand. Second of all, when the father gave the robe, the ring, and the sandals back to the prodigal son, that was not the restoration. The restoration is when he went into his father's house and into his father's celebration. And when we come into a place where we feel that this is my father's world, he is celebrating me in his world I have more purpose in this earth than I have in heaven. Even though heaven is a goal, my purpose is in the earth. That I start to understand that wherever I go, his presence goes with me. He said he'd never leave me or forsake me. 
But do I really, when I'm going through the day, when I'm doing a project, do I ask his help? Do I interface with him? Or do I just pray at the end of the day or the beginning? Do I actually keep in communion with him? And if we look at the earth and realize this is my father's world and that I am a son or daughter connected to the father, this is the world he gave me dominion over. God created the earth. Then he set Adam, not just in Eden, but he set him in the garden of Eden to be fruitful. And in it, that he gave dominion to mankind in his earth. And that mandate has never been uh, relinquished, removed. I have a responsibility in his earth, my father's world. So, uh, you know, so think of it this way, that Dale, John, Steve, we all have a portion in our father's world that we're supposed to have dominion. And what we do is through it, we keep the plans of hell at pushed at bay and we bring in the kingdom as it is in heaven. So it's on earth. And because you and I become a conduit of bringing heaven into earth. It can be through creating jobs so people have work and make money. They can support their families. It's through creating different technology products so that it serves people, medicine for healing. We're here as conduits of the Father's heart. So, you know, in it, it's very important to recognize what we're doing that affects the Father's earth, and I believe to whom much is given, much is required. What does that mean? I cannot just choose the easy path. I must sign up for what God has made me to do. If you look around in a room beside you, there are many various things. There could be a chair, a lamp. They're all part of the room, but they each provide a certain need. They're purposeful. They're crucial to a correct environment and an end goal. So if we each do our part, that I believe that if mankind would do his part, earth would be more like heaven. So like a question I would ask is, during the days of Hitler, what person should have stood up that blocked his path, that never allowed him to take the stage of the world to the edge of hell? Who held back because they didn't feel like what they were thinking was important enough? Esther rose up in the days of Haman. I believe somebody slipped in the days of Hitler. It was his generals. I just finished reading Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. And before he invaded Austria, um, the generals had conspired and said, okay, we need to pull him out of power and we'll fill this power vacuum. And who swept in and made things right? Neville Chamberlain from Great Britain took all the wind out of their sails and the rest of the war, they couldn't get those, that momentum that they had before. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. 
Have you ever read a classic book and then reread it months or years later? John and I do this with How to Win Friends and Influence People. I know many people that do this with Five Levels of Leadership by John Maxwell and many others. Well, Blinkist allows you to reread the key thoughts and insights of these books, as well as 2,500 more, most in less than 15 minutes. John and I both signed up for Blinkist last year, and we are big fans. I recently reread the Blinkist summary for How to Win Friends once a night for a few consecutive nights right before bed just to get those concepts in my conscious and subconscious minds. The app says that that one's a 21-minute read, but I got it done in around 15 minutes. I also re-reviewed other books like The Lean Startup, Played Bigger, Launched by Jeff Walker, The War of Art, many, many more. Read via their mobile app, which is beautifully designed, or at the website, or export to your Kindle. You can even listen to the audio versions on the go or while you read along. Here's the best part. You can try Blinkist for a free seven-day trial. Embedded in the summary of this MP3 is our affiliate link, which you can access at eternalleadership.com slash blink. That's eternalleadership.com slash blink. And if you subscribe by using that link we provide, it's an easy way to help support the work that John, Sandra, Phidias, Daisy, and myself are doing to keep this show going for you. We only want to promote products and services that we personally use and are fans of, and this is one of them. Check out that affiliate link, eternalleadership.com slash blink to learn more. Thanks. One of the things that I want you to think about with the father's world, when David played the harp, he drove the demon off of King Saul. He brought worship to a small room. But when he became king, he shifted the worship life of Israel. So what you do will not really shift the world around you until you start to rule and reign. Now, that's out of my book, The Throne of David, coming. So until you develop what you need to inside of you, God will not give you a throne position. But when you come into your throne season, which is another level of convergence, then what you are starts to affect a region, a vein of business, a whole ideology. What we're talking about here, John and Steve, is we're trying to shift people into destiny by not increasing their faith, but by shifting their identity. Dale, but part of that shifting of identity, and you said it here in the book, can be the loss of close friends. David had his very close friend, Jonathan, Mm-hmm. But for him to move into that next season, that relationship needed to go away. Talk about how you have seen personally how friends have held people back, how friends have hindered from moving into that next season. I'm not saying drop your friends, but. Yeah. Well, the thing is, not everybody who takes you to the prom in high school will be with you at college. Some people don't want to go further and they're not meant to go further. What For them, their success is there. Also, uh, we are team players, but God can trade us into different teams at his bidding. Mm. There is a purpose that a lot of times when there's relationship losses, it's because God wants to take us into another dimension of our life. And, you know, I'm just being very uh, pointed and real. You know, when I was 55, my wife passed away of cancer, 
And I never planned on outliving my wife. And it brought me into a place that I had a lot of questions. But when you don't understand what you're facing, you have to get closer to the face of God to go into the next season. It actually pressed me into his presence. Now, I know some people, they'll get angry, they'll blame God, and actually a lot of people lose ministry or jobs over this kind of thing because of they make it become a God issue instead of really pressing into God to face the issue. Mm. Those are two different things. It's like you weren't faithful to me versus, okay, God, I trust that you have my life. I don't understand what I'm facing, but I understand this, that if I stand closer to you, you will take and turn this around for something I didn't plan on. And so this was a huge shift in my life. And it brought out different things in me. And one time, I actually, in talking about relationships, I was starting to ask God about not only this one, but another relationship with my father and some things that had not gone well. And I was asking God, why did this happen? And he told me this, uh, especially about my father. He said, Dale, I'm not going to give you the answer. And if you try to come up with it, it will hurt you. It will be wrong and it will hurt you. Do you trust me? If you trust me, leave it alone. It's above your pay grade. It's too complicated. There are too many people involved. It is not for you to know. Do you trust me? And I said, I trust you. I never looked back. And what I found is my trust has ushered in the new. Uh, When David lost Jonathan, I really believe that it was a tremendous friendship that really shook him to the core. But what happened, it made him trust God because I think as Jonathan was probably 15 years older, he was more like an uncle than a brother. As he was older, it made David trust God instead of leaning into Jonathan. And I can prove it to you. Jonathan loved David, but he did not have David's spirit. And he actually would have been a hindrance to David down the road in his kingdom. You know, that's interesting. I remember uh, when I first got out of the Navy and I was trying to figure out what was next. I did not want to get out of the Navy. I'd been injured. And one of the first guys that mentored me and discipled me through our church, he said, John, the, the person that you're going to be in five years, it's the books that you read, what you put up here. You have to reprogram your thinking and your mindset and how you approach things. He was really encouraging me to read books on personal and spiritual development. But he also said, who you're going to be five years from now is completely dependent on who you associate with and who you surround yourself. And he challenged me not to kick my friends to the curb, but to go find people that were more spiritually mature, that were accomplishing some of the things that I wanted to accomplish that were, you know, pushing themselves out of their comfort zone because in doing so, he knew that that would release in me kind of the courage and the potential and the willingness to not only to try, but to also when you fail, because a lot of, I'm sure David, as he walked through these, is like, wow, that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to (laughs) be, right? I did not expect (laughs) to be living in a cave writing these Psalms about how horrible life is right now. But you know what? He had people around him 
And what I have found is that power of association and the right association has been one of the biggest assets in my entire life. And if you can show me who you hang out with, I will tell you what will probably be hanging on you in the future. Mm. Because that you pick up from other people's spirit, uh, you pick up from other people's faith, you pick up from other people's accomplishments. And that's why it was so critical for David to be anointed by Samuel, because Samuel was the prophet. He was the priest. He led the armies into battle. He knew how to talk to God. All the things that David needed in his life were actually in Samuel's mantle. And one of the things that I realized is that as I become a father, the greatness that's in me, God is asking me to pour it over other people. And what happens is it does not mean they get a shortcut. It means they have an anointing to go for the prize, to not settle for less, to dream bigger. It's interesting even how people that become presidents met other presidents when they were not even in the political realm, but it impacted them. I mean, I think it was Bill Clinton shaking the hand of a president. JFK. Know, JFK, and something ignited in him. You know, when somebody shakes your hand, John or Steve, something should ignite in them uh, because what we have starts to pour over people. You know, so Dale, the- you when you just said this, because I wrote it down and I used red ink and blue ink and black ink on my notepad <laughs> here. When someone shakes your hand, something should ignite in them. And how many of us want to be that person that we're showing up in such a way, we're so connected to our identity, our purpose, our passion, that there is a presence there that when we shake somebody's hand, they're going, wow, Dale, you just inspired me and I don't even know you yet. What do you think needs to be in place that when you show up and shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye and you're from your heart, you're just looking into their soul saying, man, I love you and I see that potential What needs to be in place that you are that kind of ambassador for Christ out in the world? Well, to me, you actually have to feel you carry part of your father's greatness on this earth. That Mm. if you took the body of Christ and we shoved this all together, we would represent Christ. And, you know, somebody came up to me, a young man said to me one time, he said, you know, that I had been prophesying and speaking to people's lives awakening their destiny. He said, you know that prophecy thing? He said, you're really great at it. And I just looked at him. I said, I know. That's what God made me to do. My only question is, what did God make you to do? Because whatever it is, you're really great at it. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was celebrated his compliment to me. Then I turned it around and said, whatever he created you for, you're going to be really good at it. Awesome. And so the understanding that each of us carry part of our Father's greatness so that when people look at us, they actually believe there's a God we serve. And if we don't carry His greatness, people will never want to worship Him because they see no difference in the fact that we believe in Him or follow Him. If we don't do something astounding, if we don't do something amazing with our life, there is no testimony of God's goodness in the earth. 
Until I'm amazed by what I've done, I have not tapped into my father's greatness. So like I only knew 50% of this book when I started writing and he literally, I can learn from what the book I wrote because he, I feel like I'm not saying this religiously. I felt like he wrote through me. Have you ever prayed so good? It's you want to write it down. That's not you praying because if it was, you would remember it. Have you ever given somebody business advice or wisdom and it's so good. It's actually helping you. That's not you. That's the Father's wisdom through you. That's when a pastor gets up and he preaches better than he studied. That's when a businessman has an idea better than what he thought before he entered the business meeting. And so what we understand is that this is the way God made us. He made us in his image and likeness so that we could carry his greatness. My dog cannot carry the greatness of Father God, but you and I can. And that really, when we carry his greatness, then people give him glory because they see him through us. I always ask this to people, have you ever seen the devil through a person? Yeah. Well, how about letting Jesus be seen or the Father's wisdom be seen through us? We're carriers of his glory. And this is the question, how much glory can you carry of the Father and not take it? See, if you have no hidden agenda, God can hide his agenda in you. But if you're trying to prove who you are, uh, he will not anoint that continually. He wants to anoint you to prove who he is. And when we do what we're called to do under his glory, it actually brings him credit. And people want to know him because it unlocks their heart, their destiny. Most people are living such a bland life. It's so boring, they fall asleep on their own life. Hmm. And they use stimuli in the world because they've not entered into dimensions of faith, risk, glory, dreaming. And so, you know, we all know this. Dreams, uh, like Joseph, have a different street address than what we think, but where they end up are breathtaking. That's so good. Dale, I want to close this one out because I guarantee you that there are listeners right now that feel like they're in the thick of it. They're in the thick of it so much that they've almost given up. Maybe they have given up on their dreams and they don't feel like it's within reach anymore. And when I look back at David's life, I think of the zigzag moment when... Mm -hmm. All of his men's wives and children were plundered and taken by, I believe, the Philistines. And then the men yeah. were about to mutiny against them, and it looked like everything was going to fall apart. Here in the book, you say, everyone must go through a time of being dishonored and criticized by those whom they had developed favor and position that seemed like the sure path to destiny. It's a David test. Encapsulate for the listener what the David test looks like and what they need to do to pass it. Well, if you look at Ziklag in the Bible, you flip the page, David is anointed king in Judah. Actually, it was a seven and a half year process. And most people get frustrated with partial fulfillment, but David even pressed past that. But I want to go back to where his great and mighty men talked about killing him. What David was learning was to be dependent on the Lord alone, 
not the great and mighty man he raised up around him because David would then make them the strength of his kingdom and not God. So Mm -hmm. what God will do is let what you've developed fail so you do not let it become an idol, but it becomes a tool. It doesn't become your source. It becomes a resource, and there's a big difference. It becomes something the Lord has blessed you with, not the blessing itself. And so in it, what David really learned was really God was his portion at the low time as well as the high time. And when you can find him, when you can't find anybody else, he'll find you a destiny nobody else can find for you. Ooh, that's a great one to close out this episode. Dale Mast is our guest, and David Perceived He Was King is one of his books. Dale, we are going to have you on for your next one. How do people find you? How do they listen to you? How do they start to get plugged in with you? Well, we have a website, uh, daleandluann.com. And uh, if you look me up, I'm also, the books are on Amazon. We sell them on our website. And that uh, daleandluann.com, I think you put it up and spell it out. And uh, you can find us. We look forward. I got, uh, actually, my third book is The Throne of David. It's actually being printed as we speak. Awesome. We will have you on the second half of 2019 to talk more about that after I get a chance to buy it on Kindle and highlight the snot out of it. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> Amen. Dale. Well, I've enjoyed our time, John and Steve. Thanks so much. 